Are you a physician looking to take your own profitable medical expert witness practice to the next level? MedicalExpertWitness.com is the ultimate program to learn how to brand yourself as an expert witness and get yourself seen. Sure, building a reputation in the field from scratch has its challenges, but don't let them hold you back. MedicalExpertWitness.com understands what you're facing as they were once there too. In fact, 10 years ago, CEO Dr. Jordan Romano started his own consulting in the medical malpractice space. His experience has included providing expert witness testimony, reviewing medical records, and analyzing complex medical cases. Dr. Romano has become well-versed in the intricacies of medical malpractice law and has worked on cases for both plaintiffs and defendants in nearly every state in the U.S. And now, his company provides medical professionals with the tools and support they need to supercharge their career as a medical expert witness. Sounds great, doesn't it? Absolutely. Just imagine having the support you need to brand yourself as a medical expert witness too. Now that's powerful. So what are you waiting for? Visit medicalexpertwitness.com today and gain access to a mentor who can connect you with attorneys in need of your specialized knowledge, expand your network, find new cases, and watch your business thrive. What is the Stanford Fulfillment Model and how can we apply it to our medical practices? How can we update morbidity and mortality and other quality improvement methods so that we can minimize terror and maximize learning? Find out. Hey, this is Brad Block, host of The Physician's Guide to Doctoring. This is a personal and professional development podcast for physicians where we have experts on the show that try to teach us everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. Dr. L.A. Alvarez, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thanks a lot, Block. I hope that we can move forward with just first name basis. Well, we're going to start off with telling us a little about your training, although I will spill the beans on this. So we know each other because we went to SUNY Buffalo together. I was yeah. class of 06. He was class of 07. So that's where it started. And take it from there. What happened next? Yeah. So I'm an emergency physician. I work at Stanford. I'm the director of well-being amongst several other roles that I have. I trained in the Bronx at Jacoby Montefiore. I spent four years there. And shortly after, I actually moved to California to a county hospital, which I did not know. I was affiliated with Stanford. That's how I got into to Stanford. I had zero plans on working in an academic place. I wanted to work in a county hospital. And so I actually became the assistant medical director in at the Santa Clara Valley Medical Center. It's the busiest emergency department in the Bay Area. And at that time, when I moved there, it was the second busiest in California. So I really wanted to work in that very busy, high stress, high volume place like Jacoby. And this is really rooted because I, during residency, I got to work in Haiti right after the big earthquake in 2010. And also I spent a couple of months in Ghana in a district hospital in the middle of nowhere, like four hours away from like their big hospital where I ran their emergency department. So I wanted to do more of that. And so, yeah, so that's how I ended up in California. And one thing after another, because it was affiliated with Stanford, and actually they intentionally did not recruit for people who would work for Stanford because they wanted people that would work primarily in the county hospital. And so they never advertised it. And I didn't find out until during my interview that I'll be teaching residents and medical students at Stanford and, and the rest was history. Well, the rest is in history. That's how you're employed by Stanford University, but we're not you're not on the podcast because you've got the the Stanford on your scrub jacket, which is he's got the for those who are not watching on YouTube, he's got the Patagonia on the new white coat. 
But that's not why you're on the podcast. I have zero financial disclosures, and I am here on my behalf and not representing Stanford. Yes. The, as we say at the end of the episode, the views are ex- that only of Dr. Alvarez and not of Stanford University or the hospital system. Okay. But that's again, that's not the reason that, you, that you're on the podcast. The reason that your podcast is you do so much work now with compassion and resilience and wellness. And that's something that that you're passionate about and also something, fortunately, that Stanford is passionate about. So I think that's a good place to start. Yeah. What is the Stanford fulfillment model? Yeah, I really like the way that they frame this is the Stanford professional fulfillment model really focusing on three things. So you need to have the culture of wellness. We need to be able to create an environment that really cares and understands wellness and have wellness interventions. The second part, and I think the most important part here is the efficiencies of practice. How can we make things better, more efficient for people to do the thing that they're supposed to be doing? So I'm gonna borrow Greg Goldner's work here. Actually, it's DC's work on self-determination theory. It's the idea of autonomy, belonging, and competence. How can we create an environment that really fosters that sense of autonomy and sense of competence, like giving you the right training? And the belonging piece really falls into that culture of wellness. And then the third part is personal resilience. And depending on where you work and depending on what you're doing, I think that highlights that it's not just all on us to resilience our way out of an environment that is pretty harsh. Medicine is very harsh in some ways. Like some people use like it's a work hazard. Like people don't talk about that when we get to medical school. And so the professional fulfillment model um, highlights, and it's actually not like, focusing on burnouts. I think that's another context here. We have to really focus on what can we do to help clinicians develop this sense of professional fulfillment. And it's not happiness, it's not job satisfaction, it's just feeling a sense of fulfillment in what we do. Because we spent a lot of time, we invested time and energy to get to where we are now. And I think there there has to be some meaningful effort from the institution. It's just to be clear that the culture of wellness and efficiency of practice That is, the onus is on the institution, the departments, to develop and provide. And the small part there, personal resilience, that's on us. That's really interesting that you're saying it's the department's responsibility to make sure that they are facilitating all of this, whereas historically it has been completely or nearly completely on the individuals. And I would imagine that allows, aside from just being Stanford, that allows them to be a competitive place to work, to to want to work. They're able to, they're able to recruit the best and the brightest because it sounds like a nice place to work if they're really interested. And then retain that. It's so expensive to replace a physician who's quit, and so now yeah. they don't they don't have to Depending do it. So it's specialty five hundred thousand yeah. dollar to up to two million dollar per physician that leaves the work. So, so it's, it's actually a great financial model for the institution to to take care of their clinicians. Right? Like all these wellness interventions that we do, they don't cost a lot of money, but if they work, they save the hospital like tons and tons of money. Yes. What's cheaper though? Making us do modules on our own time. <laughs> That's cheaper. That's cheaper. We, and, and again, I will say this, but one of the things that I'm really proud of the work at Stanford is that we don't have those modules. We have some, some really required modules, but like at the end of the year or the beginning of the year, we just attest that we know about all of these things. So it, it still puts the onus on us. Like that is the personal responsibility and accountability that, that I had to learn that. But 
I'm not required to spend like hours. I remember like working at other hospitals, like hours and hours of like clicking through and cheating, right? And then here, that moral distress of, I don't have enough time. And so I'm going to click fast forward, listen to this three times faster. And you're not really retaining. You're just like doing it for the sake of doing it. And so we don't do that because we know that nobody does it anyway, like for the right reasons. And so we just have you a test. All right. Excuse me. I got to go tell my wife that we're moving to Northern <laughs> California. We're leaving. We're leaving. Now, I know I love my practice. We're not going anywhere. Not going anywhere. Everyone join ENT and Allergy Associates. We're, we are, we're the best. But okay. So let's talk about the things that, that you do specifically with the residents and that you talk about. So one of the my favorite things that I've heard you talk about is that is your epiphany moment that you're realizing that as the attending, you are actually the cause of burnout in the trainees, right? Yeah. So tell us about that. Yeah. And I think it's even going before that. For me, when I was the clinical, when I was the in the clinical operations area, the assistant medical director, I caused a lot of burnout to faculty. I was the one that would tell people and the staff, right? Like I was the one people telling people to make things better, faster, more efficient. Like how come this is taking forever? Or worse, when bad outcomes happen, because they do in medicine, and many of them is actually beyond our control, individual control. I was that guy that would send you an email, secure email. Hey, let's talk about this case. And I see your facial expression, right? Like I do that. Actually, my quality director, our quality director texted me as I was waking up today. Hey, do you have a moment to chat? And I knew I had some language already, right? And I love her. She's adorable. But I actually like that she texts me because if I wake up and I saw the email of secure, talk about this case, then that soft launch is something that I learned later on that like it just humanizes me that I know that just like me, even though I've done this for several years now and I was the quality director, even I still get, like, to this day, I get palpitations, like, crap, what did I do now? Because there's always that motivation for failure. We're always worried that, that we're going to fail and that shame that's associated with that. And similarly to residents, when I was, so my transition to, to, to Stanford was actually, I, I was hired as one of the assistant program director. So I dabbled a lot in, in my career, I pivoted a lot, probably not dabbled, but pivoted different spaces, including my role now in the well-being space. But as the assistant program director, I used to get teaching awards. So when I was at the county and because of my bedside teaching and whatnot, to all of a sudden, and I have to give feedback. I was the bad guy. I was the enforcer. I, I had to make sure that the residents fill out their forms and do their procedure logs and all of these things. And, and their residents are working really hard already. And it's so easy to forget that they're also navigating their own knowledge base, their own way of practicing, and navigating the tensions of they're being hazed, like whether we want it or not, like they, they have to prove themselves to their patients, to to the to to the nursing staff, to other faculty, to other consultants. And actually Shanafelt's work on the imposter phenomenon, like they found that like physicians are the highest imposter phenomenon compared to any other U.S. workers, then that says a lot because we're probably one well, of the more accomplished individuals in the country, and yet we're the ones who experience the highest imposter phenomena. And so I started learning that, like me, even asking questions. And again, my training in the Bronx is very different. Like I, I do something, my attending would be like, "What the hell are you doing?" or like, "Why would you do that?" That's a very New York way of asking, and, and it's not—it's not meant to put you down. It's just—it's just a question, just like. 
Asking somebody, yeah, how are you doing? But there's the way of asking it. And then there's like the Midwest way of asking it. And then there's the New York way of asking it, right? Yeah. Like, and hey, hey what are you doing over there? Right? Like, instead yeah, of, I, what are you doing? Do? <laughs> is that so? What is the Midwest of asking? The Midway, my, listen, I've spent zero time in the Midwest, but I would imagine it's a little friendlier. We're like, hey, what are you doing over there? Not, what are you doing over there? Yeah. In California, I, the language that I did not have was, hey, I noticed you did this. Can you walk me through your thought process? Uh, uh, yeah. So there's a lot more curiosity. And the people in New York, it's actually would be laughing about this. And the people in California would also laugh about this because they're like, oh, yeah, I don't even re recognize that I do that now. But it's just a different way of communicating. And I struggled with that. In fact, like that's how I actually started getting involved in the wellness space. Not so much because of the burnouts of the residents, but like I started realizing that faculty, it was so isolating. So for residents, and maybe it's different where you practice when we give feedback to residents, it's not anonymous. Like my name is attached to that. But the opposite is not true. Their feedback to us is collated at the end of the year and it's anonymous. And so again, I came from the background of for five years, I was getting all these like teaching awards. So all of a sudden, like the very first year as a faculty, I got one or two really nasty, unhelpful, not productive, like just cruel anonymous feedback about the way, it's not even like the way that I taught, it's just like my personality. And, and that I think is, and I see your facial expression and I actually understand where they're coming from. And that's where I struggled with it because number one, I'm like, they lied to me. Like they were giving me all these awards only to stab me now, like in the back and not having the right support systems to do it. And I didn't even have the language to communicate this because I thought it was, again, imposter phenomenon. I thought I was not cut out to work at Stanford, but the me, like, I was like, I asked questions like, what am I doing wrong? Like, how am I screwing up? Like, why is this like a thing? Like, people are just like writing these comments in your evaluation. These are just internet. They weren't real residents. They were internet trolls. Internet okay. trolls. They were exactly. just like yeah. trolls. Like, like somebody's trolling your, those trolling comments, like affect your promotion affects. So then I ask people and then I it just hurts. You have feelings. It You're still hurts. a human being. It, it does hurt it your hurts. feelings. You're allowed to say that. And, and, and so when I, when I did and I said that, I was like, Hey, I think one of my faculty asked me, I was like, Hey, how are you doing? I was like, I'm like, I got this really nasty evaluation. I've never gotten that before. And it's, it shocked me. And she said, Oh, that happens here. I was like, what do you mean it happens here? Nobody tells you this. And so now I, so that was the beginning of my journey actually to talk about things like that. And, to, and then to understand maybe there are the skills that I need to learn, which I did. I, again, I had to learn how to communicate feedback better. And it's an ongoing thing. There are times that I still have to like pause. And this is where for me, the mindfulness is very important. I'm like, Ooh, I'm getting hyperactivated here. Like I'm getting like upset with this conversation. I need to like back off a little bit, or I need to give some space. Or if you listen to our conversation, I speak really fast. That's a tall big guy who speaks really fast. That can be very intimidating for somebody who's, who's already nervous. Who's also trying to prove themselves that they're just as good as anybody else in the residency program, right? So there's that common humanity that we see in compassion, but I didn't understand that before. And so now we do a lot of work on giving feedback and actually more so, how do you receive feedback? Maybe there's like a nugget of truth there in, some, in one of those nasty comments that, that people like wrote to me, like too aggressive or not speaking enough. Like a, a lot of these tensions that doesn't make sense and they're actually like often contradictory. And so that's how I started into this space. And literally I reached out to, one of the speakers, I went into this talk on Finder in School of Medicine. And so I reached out to the speaker. I was like, 
I found out I'm an activator. I get people excited about the most boring things. And I said, hey, what if it's like me being an activator is the one that's actually challenging people, is making them like feel uncomfortable. How do you navigate that? And Stanford being Stanford, the person didn't know me then, but she offered, she's like, hey, do you want to grab a cup of coffee? And that was actually the beginning of, and then she introduced me to to the Physician Wellness Forum. At Not Stanford. a kombucha, I would imagine in Northern California, just mostly kombucha. Tea, actually. <laughs> okay. I don't call I'm right. <laughs> and listen, I actually don't drink, I, 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 you don't want me to have caffeine. Um, and, and, and so so we had nice tea. Yeah. And a year later, I became the chair of that Physician Wellness Forum because I started normalizing. I started talking about like loneliness in medicine, like the shame in medicine that we experience. Yeah. And I started doing more of that because it was aligned with what I really felt passionate about. And I was seeing that in as much as we want to work and take care of our patients, we don't often pause and take care of ourselves or even acknowledging all the mess that we're dealing with. So what, tell us about some of the things you've brought to Stanford in, in that position. Because one of the things that, that the medis, medical training, we're like build trauma on trauma. So like morbidity yeah. and mortality. So let's say you've got, you're in, you're in the operating room, you have a complication, you have a bad sure. outcome. You now not only feel bad because the patient didn't do as well as you expected and they expected, but now you've got to answer in front of the most of scathing everybody. critics yeah. and they yeah. crucify you each yeah. time, right? So not only do you feel badly already. I still remember my cases when I was in residency. Again, I trained in the Bronx. That was a very common thing. I don't take credit for this. So in our department at Stanford, we don't even call it peer review. The same person that texted me today, if I have a moment to chat, she changed the name to case review. It's not about the peer. The peer is already berating themselves and feeling bad about, about what happened. It's about the case. And can we look at the case from a lens of operations, from a lens of process improvements? And also, if there is a gap in knowledge, then that person should know. But you don't need to broadcast that to the world that they need to. Like, how can a smart physician who trained four years of undergrad, four years of medical school, right. at least, right? And in four years of residency training, mess, miss a STEMI. It's, it's just very difficult to do that because we're supposed to have ace a lot of these tests. And yet it happens. And so when that happens, we have to understand, like, what were the environmental factors that led to that? So we call it, like, case reviews. And also, we like, there's many things. Like, similar to what I shared earlier, like, we have soft launches. So when I was in APD, if my residents are involved in, this, in these cases... It's my job to still let them know, hey, let's, let me formally reach out to you because this is a formal process. It's a review process that's required by the hospital. And it doesn't take away the fact that I'm reaching out to a human being. So then I would text them like a soft launch. Hey, you're going to get this formal email. It's actually not that serious. Or you're going to get this text, this email. Let me know if you want to talk. I can talk now, like well, whenever you're free so that we can just quickly chat about what happened. So in, in some ways, I can also coach them on like how to respond to it because a lot of it is like emotions, right? We download a lot of our emotions and then what they don't know is like that can get forwarded to like everybody else who's part of that review process. And it's not helpful for anybody, right? The person is again, just like 
feeling awful already about the case. And you're not um, in a position to learn. You're not in a position to, rein t- to retain that information. So it's not a good learning environment because you're not accomplishing right. what the ultimate goal is, which is that person becoming a, very, a better physician. You are right. probably doing the opposite. You're draining them of their compassion. You're draining them I of humanity and they're not learning. learning. That's right. I still remember the case that I had when a patient died of a uric dissection. I've presented about that now so many times, but I also still remember being QI'd and being grilled and like, why did you do this? Why did you not order an x-ray? Things happen, right? And when you look at it from an objective mind and not like the peer review lens of the shoulda, coulda, woulda, we actually gain a lot more perspective of how can we change the system better? Again, that efficiency of practice and culture of wellness and the professional fulfillment model is very ingrained into the work that we do. Another thing I think what you're suggesting is perhaps what if like, if we focus on the negative things then we just fix the negative things, but what we forget to recognize is we are actually doing a lot of great things. And so in our department, we do save of the months. And for a while it was great. Like we actually initiated that because it, it created a sense of recognition and appreciation for the work that we do, but it only focuses on one person or like the three people. We started doing three save of the months because there has to be at least three people like in the month, the person who did all the work, it's the entire team. And so in as much as we do M&M and morbidity and mortality report, Daniel Cabrera and Eve Purdy actually has done work on amazing and awesome ANA. And so we've instituted that in our department and it's pretty neat. So if you get nominated for Save of the Month, you now it's embedded in our conference. So you get half an hour in our conference to talk about the entire, so you, then people grill you, but again, collegially, tell me about what happened. And it's a great way to highlight the entire team because it starts from like the waiting room. Sometimes it's even like the EMS, like we invited the EMS in one of our, like one of these sessions and gave their perspective about what they saw when they took care of the patients. And then really looking at each of the fine points and how can we do more of the good things that are happening instead of doing less things of the bad things that are happening. I call it the goosebumps moments. Like Whenever I feel like I'm feeling that right now, because I felt this last night, like I worked last night and like we had a really challenging resuscitation, not a good outcome, but like when we did the diffusing session, when we talked about, Hey, let's just quickly chat about what happened. A patient died. Right. And so we often don't even take the moment to pause and recognize that like one of the people, like one of human being just died in front of us. And like this entire team, the swarm team that's trying to resuscitate a patient are now going to like move, leave the room and take care of another patient and forget, like just compartmentalize that. And so what we've now instituted in our department in collaboration with the trauma team is, can we just pause and acknowledge that there's a human being here right now? And then also acknowledge that each of us are human beings that like each of us contributed to something that led to the performance that we did. And so at least when you go home, you don't drive. And again, I'm a nocturnist. I like, I drive home an hour from Stanford to San Francisco. Thinking of the, ah, I should have done this. I could have done this. But if you have a shared mental model of, wow, like this is the first time we've actually done this in the history of Stanford. Like one of the things that we were able to do, or we were able to effectively do chest compressions because somebody was timing and somebody was telling, like, there was a coach in the background. I was like, hey, you're doing a great job. Like, do you need help? You're really, that's effective chest compression. Like things like that, right? Don't take. The outcome was bad doesn't mean you didn't do everything right and you didn't do everything well. And so those, and I, yeah, I don't understand how we've been, 
People have been passing in front of us for so long and we just go on to the next patient. And there's been no, it's just remarkable to me that it's 2023 and we're finally taking this time to reflect and realize this was a human being. Yes, we do have other human beings in the waiting room that are waiting for us to take care of them. But like the trauma of being that provider and then just having to move on. And to now be able to shift that a little bit, wow, I actually did something good for that patient, even though the patient died, because maybe that is the trajectory. Like, I can't control that. We're not gods. That's another problem, I think, like in in medicine. We went from like that era of distress where we were like the gods. Like, it takes a doctor to call somebody dead. Like, the patient has been dead at home, but they have to go to the hospital to be called time of death, blah, blah, blah. Like, that like leads to change in some ways. But then even with the pandemic, you see all these like videos and billboards of like doctors with capes. Like we are looked at as superheroes. Like I think in my work, if there's one thing that I'm like really passionate about is to humanize doctors. We're just as human beings as our patients, as anybody else that we're dealing with. And so like for that particular case that we had last night, it was great to actually see people smiling afterwards because they felt valued. They felt like they contributed to something as opposed to before I used to do this, yeah, like after that death, people are just like morose. They're just like yeah. walking around. So yeah. you're actually much better to take care of other people because you were able to emotionally offload some of those baggages that you don't need to carry. Like it's an entire team. You don't have to go through that alone. That makes a lot of sense. And you as the attending, I'm guessing you go, you did a great job on this. Thanks for your help on this. Like we really, you did your best. I saw you working hard there. We really did everything. Like you get to be that coach to all the, to the team members so that everybody leaves there feeling more fulfilled. Cause it is. Yeah. But yeah. not Pollyanna. Like I have gotten that. Like I was at one point, I was so like, Alvarez, you're not allowed to use the word reframe. So I actually don't use the word reframe <laughs> anymore. It really is. But it's not. So then I had to own that because I do a lot of work on compassion stuff. I do see a lot of positive things. There's actually science behind that. If you just think of three things that you're grateful for each night by day five, you start noticing more positive things. And then that practice, if you just do, the, do that for two weeks, it actually lasts up to six months. And they've even shown that it's better than Prozac after six months of just doing a two-week intervention. And so I do a lot of these things. Already. So I had a rough shift last night. So this morning I was writing a lot of kudos. Like, hey, thank you. For, like, and, and not like, um, uh, not superficial, like great job thing. Like truly like on the way out, like i putting myself in, in, the, in this space right now. As I was leaving the hospital, I saw one of the security guards who actually helped me two nights ago. And this patient was very agitated and he was so calm. He de-escalated the whole thing. I was like, hey, thank you so much for doing that. I really appreciate it. It allowed me to talk to the patient. It allowed me to actually like do the best thing that we can for that patient without having to tackle him. And then his face lights up because that's what happens when you share gratitude. And then there's the, the go back into the ping pong effect of like positivity. I think that we forget that we have control of these things rather than just focusing like the oppressive nature of the work that we do. I'm not, I don't want to take that away from us, right? We chose a hard path. We we signed up to be doctors in an environment where there's a lot of expectations for us. That's actually not something that we can easily reach. I think knowing that I have still control over this, the autonomy, that I can be grateful for the people that I'm working with, that I can like focus on the things that I can control, like that to me is like a really empowering moment. 
I love it. I love it. So we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about self-compassion a little bit. So we uh, yeah. we've alluded to it, but we haven't actually dissected it. So just first, just define for us what is self-compassion. Oof. I love how you ask these thought-out questions. For me, self-compassion. So I'll use Kristen Neff's uh, definition of this. It requires three things. Number one, I think we have to be kind to ourselves. We have to understand that like, we're just as human as everybody else. So that gets to the second part, the common humanity. And the third part is mindfulness. Like just to be self-aware whenever we're not as kind to ourselves. In my practice, I actually flipped that. I think we have to just be self-aware in general, not just to be kind to ourselves, but to just like slow things down. We're always hurried. Like we're always rushing to do things. And I made a lot more mistakes. Like I caused more problem by rushing into things rather than slowing into it. So if I can re-fix, like move things around, I would start with um, that mindfulness, that's that self-awareness, the micro moments of just noticing what, what's happening to me. And then understanding that I deserve to be kind to myself just as everybody else deserves that compassion. And that everybody, that common humanity, just like you, Brad, Bradley, I, I don't do well if I don't sleep well, or I don't do well if I have so many deadlines that I feel like I'm failing to achieve. And knowing that's like I work in an environment where there's work compression, the residents are overworked, then I have to be kinder. I can design events like, oh, like I, I personally bring food to work. Number one, because people have always told us they can't eat in the emergency department, which is just like wrong. And so that was like one of the, I invested a lot of energy in, in, in making sure that we should eat just like anybody else. Like nurses get breaks, like doctors do not, like why not? And so I bring food and I usually bring food that I, like my residents are like craving or like they love. And so I bring like nice food, not just like chips and stuff, because then I, I don't have to eat the whole thing. I get to share that. And there's something about sharing food with people that then makes them feel like, ah, this is actually a good shift that we can work with. So self-compassion to go back to your question is like finding ways to apply that compassion that we normally naturally have for other people. I, I love the food thing because I feel like that is the center of cultures, right? Like it's, it's so many, language. everything revolves around food, every celebration, everything. And it's every culture is proud of their food. I think the one exception might be England. They're like most proud of their Indian food. Let's you go to London. Oh, have you had the that's Indian right, food? Yeah, it's really yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the one. That's the one exception. But like everyone else. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that. So you bring you you bring something that you're proud of, and they're going to enjoy. And then you. Well, actually, no. I asked the, the residents. So I asked them, "Hey, what are you craving for tonight?" And so I can tell you, like, what we ordered this past weekend. I only again, I work overnights, and I usually work weekends. So uh, one night it was uh, pizza because somebody wanted pizza, and then I there's this great fried chicken place in San Francisco that I get. It's at a gas station. Are you serious? Like, like gas station fried chicken. It is my favorite. I love fried chicken. It's my favorite fried chicken in San Francisco. So I brought that. And then I think we had Thai food one night. So I, I really do try to. And then, oh no, the other night we were celebrating the last night of my one of our residents are graduating. So it's our very last overnight shift. And so I brought some something from the bakery from Tartine. Oh, famous. Wow. Fa fancy. Oh, yeah. Indulging, yeah, yeah. Dr. Alvarez. Very nice. So there's one more thing that I want to end with because sure. there's a juxtaposition between self-compassion and resilience. Sure. Because we need to be able to recover and continue working. As you described, 
after a code, right? Sure. That you have to be able to be resilient, but it requires self-compassion because we can't just keep grinding without sure. that. It's not sustainable. So could you describe for us how those two things, resilience and self-compassion, are intertwined? Yeah. I don't think you can be resilient without self-compassion. So I think at the heart of that professional fulfillment model, they haven't really made that like big announcement from mm -hmm. MD, but at the heart of that is actually self-compassion. We have to be kinder to ourselves in order to have that culture of wellness, in order to have like in order to have like efficiencies of practice. Because by me practicing self-compassion, I can have boundaries better. I can have, I can understand that like me seeing more patients in the waiting room is actually not helpful for the sick patients that I have inside the emergency department. And me seeing patients in the waiting room and trying to just discharge them fast to treat a number, a volume number, right? Puts all that risk at me. And when bad things happen, I am the one who has to respond to people. So why did you just send this patient home with chest pain, shortness of breath, and the negative troponin like that normally you wouldn't have done if the patient had a bed in the emergency department? So when we start cutting corners because of fixing numbers, efficiencies of practice or inefficiencies of practice, that is not practicing self-compassion, right? And also, I then get to decide, you know what, like, I, I am sleep deprived, but I really want to spend this extra time with my patient right now to talk to them and connect with their family, even though my shift ended like half an hour ago. I will do that because it fills my cup, right? So we get to choose. I think that's where self-compassion is. I mentioned earlier before we started recording, I've come to really enjoy working with the Mission Critical Teams Institute. And there's a summit that we attend. And it's actually, a, a, I, I co-lead one of the conferences that, that we have, that the High Performance Resuscitation Team. And really, my point here is that in Mission Critical Team, one of the things that Preston Klein talks about is there's three, like it's usually attributed to generations. There's the robustness, right? The generational robustness. You get punched, just, just like weather through that. And just take the punch. And then the second part is resilience. If you get punched and you fall, just get up and continue moving. And then there's a generation of mindfulness. If you get punched, like, if you're not going to get punched, like, why get hit? Like, why don't you just move? And, but I think my point of bringing this up is that I think we need to learn all three skills. There has to be time for me to be robust. Like, I step on a Lego. Like, I need to just keep on going because even though that hurts, like, I need to go somewhere. But the mindfulness in me, like, will notice, like, oh, there's a Lego there. Maybe I can avoid that. And if I step on it and it hurts, maybe I can pause and say, hey, what do I need right now? Do I really need to? Am I bleeding? Do I need to stop and take care of myself? Or I can continue walking and maybe wear shoes next time. Like, things that we can control, I think, is something that we can really focus on if we practice self-compassion. And that, and that, I think, is focused on the negative things, right? The positive things is also true. When we do things that are great, when we, like when I got promoted to associate professor, the next thing in my mind was like, what do I need to do to get to the next level? It's a very common thing that like never ending, like, like keep it, moving it, the goalpost. Yeah. You keep moving the goalpost on yourself That's and right. it never ends. Yeah. And so a good friend of mine asked me, how are you celebrating? I was like, wow, that is such a <laughs> profound question. What do you mean celebrating? Like, I thought we're done with graduation, that now this is just like part of the job, like you do this and you get a badge and then you move on. So now I'm a lot more intentional. So when anybody in our department actually gets promoted, I ask them like, hey, how are you celebrating? To remind them that like, you worked your butt off to get to this promotion. You need to also recognize. So tonight, like 
That's why I told you I took a nap because tonight I am celebrating with one of my good friends. We were eating at this very nice restaurant because for me, like that is much more important than I don't know, like the next deadline that I I'm trying to not miss or all the never ending to do list that I have because that there will always be to do list, right? Like I'm an inbox zero, and I'm like I've accepted the fact that I'm like today I'm like inbox thirty seven, and that's okay. That is part of self compassion. I'm at inbox 12,343. And that's I just also deleted them. So okay, I can sign yeah. over. Yeah. Okay. I can get to inbox zero too. Yeah. Select all. Select <laughs> well, all. We haven't actually spoken since medical school. And the way that I found you was because of your Twitter account, your online footprint. Like I've been following <laughs> you for a while and I love what you're doing and love what you're saying. For the audience out there, where do they find you online? Yeah, and mostly because I am terrible with emails. I really do. I try to deplete as many of that. So on social media, you can find me on Twitter, Alvarezzi with three Zs. So we can put that in the chat somewhere. And then on LinkedIn, I am like the worst in LinkedIn, but like I'm trying to create my professional identity in LinkedIn because I guess that's what I have to do. But I'm on LinkedIn also. The next, if you build that, the next thing that happens is keynote speaking opportunities, getting invited to summits and stuff. And I'm sure that's going to happen for you. Yeah. Oh, already doing it. Okay. Yeah, no, I, my coach, I have a coach. I actually asked my department to to invest in an executive coach for it when I took on the role because I, because why not, right? Like we, like nobody gives, they give you an orientation for a job and you apply for it and you get it and you're like, now what? And so my coach is actually super helpful in helping me like figure out my boundaries because I gave a ton of lectures this past, we're finishing conference season. So that my trip to New York next week is the last one, but I've given over, I kid you not, 30 talks, like just this season. And I want to do that for forever. So don't build, don't build your LinkedIn then. <laughs> That's not bragging. Like truly, I, for me, it's to actually tell people like, so what, now when I say yes to things, I have to ask. So people probably do this already. Is it good for me? Is it good for my boss? And is it good for my career? So usually those are the three questions that, that people ask to say yes to things. Now I learned to also look at my calendar. Can I fit it in my calendar? If I can, then that's great. If I cannot, like which of the things in the calendar do I need to get rid of in order to fit that? And so I'm doing a lot more of these values alignment. Things that I do are truly aligned with my values now. And I'm trying to get rid of the ones that no longer really spark joy for me. And it has allowed me to pivot and also embrace my imposterism, right? And also just have time for myself to actually go on vacation twice a year, have a sabbatical, like all of these things that we don't tend to do in medicine. Get rid of the things that don't spark joy. Thank you, Dr. Alvarez, the Marie Kondo of emergency medicine. <laughs> yeah, no, I agreed. And one of the things that I've started doing because I would sign up for conferences and meetings and things, not as a speaker, but as an attendee, and then it would get to it and I'd be like, oh, I don't want to go to this. So unless it's something that I want to go to tomorrow, that I would be willing to go to tomorrow and give up whatever it is I have planned for tomorrow, then I don't sign up for it. So unless I'm super excited about it, then that, that allows me to cut down on things I attend as well. Yeah. I also now realize, like, I have had a lot of privilege in, in my position now. And so I also use that to actually leverage supporting others because I would not have gotten here without like people mentoring me, coaching me to get to where I am. So now I'm in a position to, when I take on talks, I do want to bring in other people so I can co-present with them. Like most of my roles, actually, I try to have a co-director and usually they're junior, like more junior than me so that like we can really you like- can give them the responsibility. <laughs> no, I, yeah, you can't. So you can see it that way or, and uh, I think it's actually 
the idea that I we're all replaceable. And, and that is actually very tough to hear, especially from like a wellness person. And so I don't want to do all the things that I'm doing. Like for, I pivoted every four years in my career. And so I, I now I'm a lot more intentional with, with a new role that I just took on. Like, how do I like start this? Cause I love the innovative space at the very beginning, but like, how do I maintain that? And who will want to maintain that? Because that's not going to be me because eventually I'm going to get bored and I want to move on to like different things. And so that also, I think, spreads the love to people, like spreads like opportunities and also helps people in their careers, especially those who are like underrepresented in medicine, especially those who are like women in medicine that often have to fight harder to get the promotion. And so many, so if you actually look at my work, most of my work in this space, like really focus on the intersection of wellness and the DEI space, because I think that's another area that we don't often really talk about. And yet, like we deal with every single time. Well, it's a fantastic way to finish and a great idea for another podcast episode, the intersection of DEI and the wellness space in medicine. So thank you for the idea. And Dr. L.A. Alvarez, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate this. And uh, thanks for the good work that you do. Ready to take the first step in achieving your medical expert witness goals? Book a free 30-minute call and grow your own profitable medical expert witness practice. Visit medicalexpertwitness.com and start making a difference in the legal field with your medical expertise today. Thanks for listening. I have a favor to ask. You listened to the episode until the end, which means you either fell asleep or you really liked the episode. So please share it or like it or comment on a social media post or write us a five-star review, something. It would really help me out. And maybe what you learned from this episode can help someone else too. The views expressed in this episode are those of the interviewer and interviewee and don't represent the views of their employer or even their significant other. Even though the magic of podcasting make it sound like I'm talking directly to you, this is not a doctor-patient relationship and this is not medical advice or financial advice or really any advice. Thank us again for listening to The Physician's Guide to Doctoring.